Hello and welcome to this commentary on The Big Lebowski, the 1998 picture directed by Joel Cohen. My name is Rob Caravaggio, robcaravaggio.blogspot.com. I'm on Twitter at Caravaggio Rob. And if you'd like to synchronize your copy of The Big Lebowski to this commentary, I'll give you a countdown in a moment to help you do that. In the meantime, what you can do is locate the very start of the movie. I'm watching it on my old Region 1 DVD here. And there is a polygram logo that comes right before the start of the movie. When that polygram logo fades to black, hit pause on your DVD, Blu-ray, or what have you. And that'll allow you to watch the movie with me in perfect synchronized harmony. Okay, if you've taken a moment to locate that sync point, so you should have it paused right after the Polygram logo has faded from the screen. I'm going to say 3, 2, 1, play here, and that'll be your cue to hit the play button right along with me. Are you ready? Okay. 3, 2, 1, blast off. Let me get my volume down here a little bit. Polygram Filmed Entertainment presents, pardon me, a working title production. So, um, boy, I've been, I've had this movie in my crosshairs for a while, uh, to do a commentary. I am a fan. Uh, I like it a lot. It's, it's, it just got put into the, uh, National Film Registry at the Library of Congress, meaning that it's, artistically significant, influential, blah, blah, blah. And so it's, it's gone in for preservation there. Um, so I don't know what that does to its status as a cult movie, right? Can something be a cult movie if it's in the Library of Congress National Film Registry? I think so. I think it depends on what, how people take, what people take as a cult movie, but, um, whatever. I hate that word, whatever. So we have the, the tumbleweed here, the rolling tumbleweed. Few things going on here. I mean, they're, they're so, um, everything is so deliberate in Coen Brothers movies. And obviously you have the Western thing going on here with the Sam Elliott character uh, narrating. Here we have the tumbleweed, which is an image from the old West and Western movies, the rolling tumbleweed. And uh, so you have that cowboy element coming into it, but there's also this... Um, as it was going down the street there a moment ago on the st- on the screen, right? It sort of looked like a bowling ball going down an alley. Uh, this idea, and there's all this uh, this idea of this um, the way they sort of put the imagery of the movie uh, in weird places like that, or use it in weird ways. Even the way the camera is sort of pushing down uh, this aisle here uh, at the end of the supermarket, where we see the dude for the first time picking up his half and half for his uh, white Russian. Even that looks kind of like a bowling alley, the way the floor is so shiny uh, and, and the way it's sort of, um, we're sort of coming at him lengthwise, lengthwise like that. But yeah, that, that tumbleweed is a very, uh, I think, a very deliberate choice. Uh, it, it sort of mixes all the elements of the film. Uh, you don't, um, as it goes through Los Angeles at night, you have that sort of Chandler-esque film noir feel, you have the Western feel, and it looks like a bowling ball, so... Got all all those things kind of happening at once in this uh, movie. That's a comedy, a very very fun very fun comedy. 
we, uh, in a moment here, we're going to get all the Coen Brothers movies to date uh, take place take place in the past. Here he's, we see the date, September 11th, 1991. He is writing, a, I believe, a 69 cent check. And uh, if that didn't secure the date in our head for us, we see George Bush on TV saying, this aggression will not stand, the, uh, the famous line. Uh, and that is going to be one of many times in which uh, the dude is sort of like a sponge in this movie. He, he repeats things he hears. So uh, he, he's going to tell someone later on in a key scene. Uh, it's actually not a key scene, but he's going to tell someone this aggression will not stand. Um, uh, and, and scenes themselves repeat, like this whole thing of getting jumped or, or people waiting for you in your house or showing up with two, two goons or two guys showing up to someone's house and sort of, uh, hey, we know about your involvement in this in this thing, and the person is really not involved uh, or may not be involved. And, and so that's going to repeat later on, too. So a lot of really deliberate, deliberate things like that. But I, I do I do think it's cool how they, they use the check and George Bush to kind of set us in the time period. Um, and there are all these, uh, especially with wardrobe, I think they, they sort of capture 1991 in, uh, in uh, very specific ways that I uh, maybe I'll point out. We actually see uh, the piss hitting the rug. So we know that we know that the dude ain't lying for the rest of the movie. We, we see the piss. Woo is pissing on the rug. Okay. Um, this is kind of uh, film noir 101 here in the sense that you have this uh, innocent or quote-unquote innocent uh, person or protagonist being sucked into this, uh, sucked into this uh ongoing situation through mistaken identity or through some sort of mix-up and through bad luck now uh, the dude will have to be off on this adventure and off and get sucked into this seedy world Uh, and it was all based on a misunderstanding of these two uh, sort of clueless goons Um, at least I'm housebroken that's that's very memorable line I always remember that line, at least I'm housebroken. Uh, it's sort of a easy joke there, but uh, for some reason, I think uh, right at the beginning of the film, it feels memorable to me for some reason. A lot of, um, as we see the opening uh, credits here, that uh, we, we sort of had, a, I, I guess, the piss on the rug. It depends on what you consider the inciting incident. I mean, the pissing on the rug is... Uh, certainly for the dude, uh, the the thing that sparks everything off. Um, you see how the bowling ball matches the tumbleweed. Um, it sort of sp- uh, that's what sets everything into motion. But you could also um, there are a couple things that happen early in the film that you could count as a, as an inciting incident. Uh, it, it depends, right? Um, when the dude is uh, enlisted by Huddleston Lebowski, David Huddleston's Lebowski, or um, the rich Lebowski, uh, to, uh, be the courier for the ransom. That is, uh, a kind of inciting incident in that it, it, it tells us what the story is going to be now. Um, no, I have so much to say. I don't know where to begin. Well, I'll get into uh, 
there's a couple things about the themes in this movie that I want to get into, uh, and I'll I'll just I'll just get them when they pop up. Um, there's Roger Deakins's credit was just on the screen if you're if you're looking to sync up. Um, I love that uh, as we see those people bowling in slow motion as if there's something beautiful about them and they're they're very sort of homely the kind of people you'd see at league night at a bowling alley right not they're not victoria secret models uh they're not abercrombie and fitch models uh there's cohen stalwart steve buscemi uh, and then when donnie dies i like i like that he, he i think he bowls a spa- he does he does not make a strike when he uh, the night he dies um This movie was released uh, as we see the dude fill in Walter and Donnie, and and uh, this scene immediately gives us the uh, <laughs> the dynamic between these these this group of friends. Uh, they're a team. They're a, they're they they are the trio that make up their team in the league, uh, in the bowling league, and um, their actual uh, progression through the tournament does not really go anywhere uh, plot wise, but it's just kind of this undercurrent that sort of. Um, allows us to see how as particularly Walter allows us to see how fucked up Walter is and how he um <laughs> cares about things in weird ways cares about the, you know has no compunction about taking a a gun out in the lanes and and but he cares about league night more than and he cares about this more than that uh I'll explain later when I talk about uh when I talk about Walter's character is very Interesting character to me. Uh, uh, some of these characters uh, is famously were based on real people. There was a real sort of dude type person, dude kind of person that uh, the Coens knew uh, or know. And um, and so they that was the inspiration that Bridges used and that they used writing the screenplay that the Coens used. And of course, um, I think uh, Walter is an amalgamation of, of different people, but those people include uh, uh, John Melius, the famous... Uh, director of everything from you know Conan the Barbarian, and he wrote Apocalypse Now, and there's a good documentary, a decent documentary out uh, last year about him. Um, uh, and you really see Melius uh, with the maybe it's the beard or the the aviator glasses. You really see Melius and uh, the way uh, John Goodman portrays uh, portrays Walter Sobchak. Um, John Melius was a lot like Walter in that there was you know obviously. Uh, Walter uh, runs around with the dude who's sort of this left-wing pacifist type, yet Walter was in Vietnam, and so he's got this pro-military aspect to him, yet he's there's this hippie aspect to him, too, and this slacker aspect to him, too. Uh, he's uh, a, a, a Jewish convert, convert to Judaism, so there's all these weird things going on with Walter, or all these uh, uh, mixtures of sensibilities that uh, I associate with John Melius. Here we have the late... Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. This is one of my favorite scenes in the picture. This little scene where he's showing off uh, the achievements of of uh, the man I'll just call Huddleston Lebowski. Clearly, the picture there with Nancy Reagan is superimposed, <laughs> uh, but it's just sort of adorable. Um, the the sort of banter and the the that the dude has with Brant here with the Philip Seymour Hoffman character is really hilarious. Um, especially when they get to the little Lebowski urban, urban achievers. Oh, different mothers. And it's just very great stuff. Uh, someone online pointed out that uh, sort of what I pointed out about how the bowling imagery is always used in throughout in these weird ways throughout the movie. And so um, 
if you look at the picture there of the little Lebowski urban achievers, uh, they are sort of arranged as bowling pins <laughs> would be. Uh, there's only 10 bowling pins, but I mean, th- those kids are sort of in the picture are stood up like and and big Lebowski or Huddleston Lebowski is in the front uh front and center as if he's going to be uh going to catch the brunt of the bowling ball first um so it's sort of a funny little thing that they do this is uh it's not just fun banter though right this is setting up one of the thematic things that the movie is really doing um that I think is really cool and interesting and sort of a good thing to think about when you think about, well, why did they set the movie in the time period they did? Well, well, one of the things about that was interesting about this time period is that, um, I love this moment, uh, he sees himself and sort of <laughs> is unimpressed by what he sees. And, and even that moment there with the Time Magazine cover is, is setting up uh, what we're going to see in this scene, which is the, the main, uh, one of the main thematic things about the movie, which is that this movie takes place uh, post-Reagan era during the George Herbert Walker Bush administration. And the Reagan era was very much uh, rah-rah, pro-capitalism. Uh, I, I mean, I'm speaking in generalities here. But, uh, you know, rah-rah, pro-capitalism, uh, Gordon Gecko, greed is good. The, uh, uh, the job creators are the ones who create the value in society. And then there's the bums, as, as uh, David Huddleston will tell Jeff Bridges here in a minute. I think a couple times he calls him a bum, right? Um, And and what you're seeing in this scene is one of the things the movie's getting at. You look at, uh, and this is another kind of scene that repeats, right? The dude sitting across a a big important man at a desk, right? Uh, And sort of getting uh, getting read the riot act, right? Um, But the dynamic of this scene and what we're presented with is, look, and this is very much a Reagan era sensibility and is still prevalent today. Look, there are the job creators. There are the people who create the, the wealth and the value in the society. There are the go-getters, the people we should admire sitting on one side of the desk, uh, David Huddleston. And then there's the slackers, the takers, the bums. You don't go out to for a job, looking for a job just like that, do you? I mean, think about all the things he says to him and all, all the things the Big Lebowski says to the dude. Uh, that's what I'll just call, I'll just call him Big Lebowski and the dude. Um, think about all the things he says to him here. Um, you don't go out for a job look, looking like that, do you? Are you employed, sir? You know, there's all this disdain and, 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 uh, uh, and derision that he has uh, for the dude. He doesn't think much of the dude. And, and there was kind of an ethos or a thinking, uh, particularly during the Reagan era, that, uh, you know, um, uh, that this is sort of the struggle in society. It's sort of a very much a Ayn Randian uh, sort of Atlas shrugged kind of thinking that, you know, this is the struggle in society, that there are the people who are who are the big brains and who are going out there and achieving, as he says, you know, so, uh, there's the Chinaman line. I love that uh, characters repeat things. Other kids. So he, he, the, the word Chinaman again there. I went out and achieved anyway. See, um, and that's what this movie is sort of interested in. It doesn't really do a lot with its themes. I mean, there's no point, really. <laughs> I mean, there's a general left-wing slant that the Coens always have. Uh, but um, the bums lost. There you go. Now, this is taking place during the George Herbert Walker, again, George Herbert Walker administration, post-Reagan era. The bums lost, right? Um, and that's sort of what the movie's interested in. Um who creates the value in, in society? And what we're presented with in that scene is one guy who creates the value in society and one guy who's a bum. 
But we're going to find through the course of the story, as we meet Tara Reid here, uh, we're going to find through the course of the story that it's actually the opposite is true, that the world needs more people like the dude and fewer people uh, like the two-faced, actually quite pathetic uh, man uh, that the big Lebowski is, the David Huddleston character is. Um, there's another thing going on in that scene as we, um, meet Bunny. And it's very important in the movie, by the way, that we see Bunny, right? That we, we, we sort of know she's real and we get a sense even in this scene, uh, and the proposition she makes the dude and even the little comment she makes to Brandt, uh, almost within earshot of Peter Stormare, the nihilist, uh, boyfriend or whatever he is, um, (laughs) Uh, it's very important that we get a sense of that she's this sort of this uh, wild person. Uh, but we know she's real. We know that part of the story is real. I'll suck your cock for a thousand dollars. There you go. <laughs> the little radio she has next to her there is very nineties. I love that. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's reactions make this make this little interaction fun. Um, see the little comment she has about Brant there is even telling. Um, when we think about the Brant character. But there was something else going on. I want to get to this. There's something else going on in that scene that you see in Coen Brothers movies a lot. Uh, I'm talking about the scene between the Big Lebowski, the first meeting between the Big Lebowski um, and the dude when they're sitting across that desk. Um, and I, I call it the the big imp- – this is just what I'm deciding to call it – the big important man uh, – that you see in Coen Brothers movies. And often, this is almost a a trope in their movies, is you have the big, important man, uh, usually wearing a suit, very impressive office, likes to read you his resume and tell you about all his achievements, uh, wants to create the pretense and appearance of being highly successful, right? Uh, But what we learn in a lot of Coen Brothers movies about this character is that behind the scenes, he's actually a scumbag or two-faced. And so you see that the big Lebowski, the David Huddleston Lebowski character, is that character that you see so much. And if you think about Coen Brothers movies, you see this character pop up all the time. Uh, it's Jerry Jerry Lundegaard is the big example in, in Fargo of just someone who's, uh, I'm the executive sales manager. You know, he's in this office and he wants to look successful, but really he's a, he's a bastard. Um, no country for old men even uh the steven root character uh big impressive office up on the 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 highest floor one of the highest floors in the building this uh all this uh, very uh, wants to create the impression of being an upstanding citizen and and a big successful guy but really he's a drug runner and and get involved with the likes of Anchon Chigurh. Even in something like Inside Lewin Davis, you have this kind of character, the big important man behind the desk. And so this is an interest that I think the Coens, um, it seems to me, have always had, as I'm, I'm talking over Walter <laughs> pulling this weapon out. Uh, fucking Zarban would know exactly what kind of firearm that is. Um, so the dog is uh it's actually a very tense scene because at this point in the movie if you're seeing it for the first time you don't know what kind of movie this is is this the kind of movie where he shoots him you know in cold blood like you don't know what kind of movie you're getting quite yet you know it's a comedy but i mean this guy just did that like that just happened you know um so yeah the big important man i think that's interesting when you think about sort of the thematic uh, things or the kinds of characters that they play. Uh, even someone like Cy Abelman in A Serious Man is a kind of twist on that sort of sort of thing. Um, 
the Huddleston Lebowski character, the big Lebowski, is, uh, it turns out, he he's presented as this highly successful, upstanding citizen. We see the little Lebowski Irvin achievers. We find out he's stealing from that organization. Um, he presents himself as this very type A, successful, Ayn Randian type of go-getter. And uh, when the truth is, he's a weak, phony, pathetic man who is, uh, may have... Uh, served as a, as a, as a veteran, uh, I think it's the Korean war. Um, but, uh, given his age, maybe, uh, maybe, well, well, given the time period in the movie, maybe world war two, uh, maybe Iwo Jima or something, who knows? Uh, I don't know if that's made clear where he served in the movie, but, but we, we learn anyway that he's this, uh, it, it's all pretense and appearances. Um, uh, he's actually a phony, weak, pathetic man who is being controlled and manipulated and, uh, sort of kept in check by the women in his life, by his daughter, Maud, and by his uh, trophy wife, uh, Bunny. Uh, uh, so I, and, and again, contrast him with the dude, or someone like Walter, or someone like Donnie. These men are controlled by no one. They're not phonies. They're exactly who they present themselves to be. The dude wasn't trying to impress anyone in that office. Donnie isn't trying to impress anyone by the kind of person he is. Walter... Eh, maybe a different story, but you get what I mean. Like these people, uh, we'll set Walter aside because he's obviously crazy. But the dude, um, Donnie, I mean, these, these the dude in particular is basically a good person, unlike the big Lebowski. So uh, there is a bum in this movie. If there's any bum in this movie, it's not the dude. The dude is actually kind of a good person. He's not really bothering anyone. He should pay his rent on time, as we're going to get in this little interaction here. Uh, I love that pile of shoes in the background, too. It's a very 90s pile of shoes. The little little production detail like that really sells the time period for me. Um, when I was talking to um, my girlfriend about this movie, I think we, we characterized the movie as um, just being a Marxist, pseudo-Buddhist sort of critique of power. And who creates, as I say before, who creates the value in society, right? But I don't even think that's, <laughs> uh, like I say, the themes in this movie are there, but I don't think the Coens generally, and particularly in this movie, really care that much about their themes. Like, it's just kind of stuff that's there, and you can respond to it or, or take it or leave it, but the movie is, they don't make movies, uh, with a couple of notable exceptions, they don't really make movies that are trying to change the world so much as capture some curiosity ab about the world. Um, again, uh, like so many uh, villains or quasi-villains in the Coen Brothers movies, we have pretense and appearances here, right? Look at this. Look at this environment. The I think Brandt called it the West Wing, right? Look at this environment. I mean, fucking Big Lebowski here is in full Franklin Delano Roosevelt mode here. It's sort of a uh, and and the character is actually in this moment sort of a, there's a little bit of Winston Churchill in the way David Huddleston looks, um, uh, and and the things he's saying. What makes a man? And then the dude's reaction. Oh, you know these sarcastic little under his breath reactions that don't really take any of this seriously like dude is unimpressed by any of this uh, uh but we have this th there's just the utter self-regard 
of all this. And it's all, it's all, you know, he's really just a scoundrel. Um, it was very, very interesting. This is a great sort of Roger Deakins, uh, movie, actually. Uh, not just the Busby Berkeley type sequences that are shot so beautifully, but stuff like this. I mean, the way he just sort of uh, coats the front of the characters' faces here with that warm, very warm light of the fire, the the sort of um, getting uh, getting it just right, what a, what a sort of mahogany, uh, woodworked uh, sort of uh, environment such as this would look like uh, in the firelight. Uh, and, and Brant is just, uh, Brant is sort of part of the act, right? Brant's, uh, the solemnness with which Brant behaves himself with the arms at his side there. Brant is part of the pretense. So a lot of Coen Brothers movies are like that, about pretense and appearances, and, um, is one of the Coen Brothers' famous ransom notes, uh, if you look at the, the letters that were chosen there carefully, the way they're sort of stenciled out and, or cut out, it, 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 they misspelled a couple words and, and clearly they couldn't find certain words from whatever publication they were cutting them out of. So they had to sort of <laughs> stitch them together. Um, I think I mentioned that this movie um, is Chandler-esque, uh, Chandler-esque on purpose, and I, I think I was trying to figure out just now what, what the fuck do I mean by that. Well, I don't know. Um, I haven't read Chandler in a long time, actually. But definitely uh, the L.A. Vortex, uh, here comes Jesus, the L.A. Vortex where uh, where a character gets sucked in uh, to this world where plot doesn't matter so much as getting to the next scene uh, and the situations that people are in. Um, this is when John Turturro dies and they do his uh, in memoriam clip reel at the Oscars or wherever, you know this is going to be in there. It's going to be like Barton Fink, do the right thing, and this. <laughs> But this is great. I mean, Totoro, whatever this is, whatever kind of character he's going for here, he gets it. Like, it's it's the Potter Stewart thing. I don't know what he's going for. But I know, you know, I know it when I see it. <laughs> I don't know what this is, but I know that it is whatever it is. A is equal to A, not not A. There's Liam. Uh, The slow motion is kind of what's funny. The panning across these sort of the faces of of his his enemies here. You almost think that the movie's going to be that the movie's going to he blows Donnie a kiss. Uh, <laughs> you you almost think the movie is going to encompass this rivalry a little more uh, and bring Jesus and Liam versus you know. I mean, if this was a Hollywood movie, whatever the dude whatever the dude and Walter's plight was throughout the movie, whatever they were trying to achieve, somehow it would culminate also with the big match, right? The big tournament match between, between, uh, Quintana and I can't remember Liam's last name, 
but uh and and uh the dudes team some somehow that would but but this isn't the i love that kind of thing in coen brothers movie you know they they just don't want any part of that stuff you know that that's yes that is what that is what a movie normally would do but they they just they're it's it, it and, and by the time the end of the movie comes around it's it's spun so so far away from anywhere in any direction you thought the movie would go that you sort of forget like oh yeah they got you know uh, i think sam elliott says at the end uh well, i sure hope they do well in the tournament <laughs> as if as if that was on the mind of the audience when uh, as they were watching the uh the movie <laughs> This is the uh, confusion between John Lennon and Vladimir Lennon here. And Lennon and Lennon. There is a um, a documentary called The Achievers, which is not a great documentary, but it's about Lebowski culture. As I say, I mean, this movie is like a cult classic now it's about like lebowski culture and people who go to lebowski fest every year where jeff bridges shows up and wears the bathrobe and wears the outfit and plays guitar and hangs out with people (laughs) it's such a funny moment where they're cleaning the uh um but yeah there there's a documentary and in the documentary there's this woman who is uh sort of an adorable woman but also kind of scary in her fandom, like that kind of shit, that kind of thing. And, uh, she, she named her dog Donnie. So every time the dog acts up, she can say, shut the fuck up, Donnie. Uh, I always, that's the one thing I remember about that documentary. I remember when this movie came out and, and I did, I did think that somehow it would culminate with them defeating the registered sex offender and, what makes Jesus so creepy is the way Liam says nothing. He was in that documentary too, the guy who played Liam. He's not an actor, he's just a dude. And you can see sort of the way he holds himself uh, on screen and the sort of ways his, his eyes are kind of at moments sort of dart around a little bit that he's not maybe not maybe doesn't have the poise as a as a real actor but uh uh yeah, that, now that I think of it, that is what makes Jesus so fucking creepy, is that Lee, he's got this guy Liam, this fucking teammate of his that just stands there and doesn't say anything, and just kind of has this self-satisfied look on his face. Um, yeah, that is kind of funny. <laughs> so once again, that, that we have a repetition here, we have our first dream sequence here. Once again, we have a repetition there of people invading the dude's house, invading his space, uh, sort of uh, roughing him up. Uh, it's not the first time the dude will be uh, rendered unconscious in the movie. Uh, the dream sequence here, it's funny how these dream sequences don't, these dreams don't really mean anything. Like he's just, this is just kind of, this dream here is just kind of what's happening, right? Maud is on his carpet. Uh, presumably it's been cleaned before she sat on it. And and he's sort of uh, flying after her. Uh, and so... Well, I guess it's clear what the dream means in a sense is that the Maud is the key to getting his carpet back. Um, so she's sitting on the carpet. We have a flying carpet thing. He's flying after her. And then the bowling ball uh, or sort of his his normal life as symbolized by the bowling ball is what drags him back down to earth. Um, the, the shot from inside the bowling ball is, is I have to say, pretty cool. 
and now, now um, the other dream sequences will actually uh, incorporate uh, imagery from places the dude goes and people he meets. He's the he's the worst detective in the world. Um, he has to sort of play the role of a detective uh, here at times, and he's just he's just terrible. I mean, it's almost like they, <laughs> it's almost like they wrote the character like, let's try to come up with a character who. It's sort of like the Chief Wiggum thing of just he's the worst cop imaginable. Whatever a good cop would do, he does the opposite. So, like, let's just, like, think of the worst guy to solve a mystery in the world. Brant opens this chest here and pulls out the briefcase. They've, they've got it all ready for the dude. They give him the phone. I remember when this movie came out, is what I was going to say. I remember when this movie came out, and I remember it because Julianne Moore, who's in the movie and who uh, I believe got the script for this movie when she was shooting The Lost World, um, I think I read that, um, Julianne Moore was hosting Saturday Night Live. Uh, the week It was probably the week this movie came out or the week before it came out. You know how they do that. And um, it had to be after the movie came out because I remember she was promoting it on Saturday Night Live and she did, I think she did a ladies' man sketch and a couple of other sketches. And um, I remember that because I had gone to see the movie and because I liked the Coen brothers and go to see their movies, I'd gone to see the movie. And I remember the movie hadn't gone, the movie hadn't done well. Um, hadn't done well at all. Uh it was a $15 million budget, and it was $46 million at the box office. So um, it made its money, but it certainly did not open huge. I don't know how many screens that is. I mean, this is in 1998, but it didn't. it's not like it opened huge. Uh, it's not like it was a smash. Uh, it came out March 6, 1998, so um, this, was, this was not a, a blockbuster. Um, but I do remember that she was hosting, hosting, uh, uh, Saturday Night Live. And this is an example of two of the worst thing you could do. Uh, it's like, we've got, we've got this character in a situation here. What's the worst thing we could have him do? Well, bring, bring his idiot friend along. And then Walter completely, uh, takes things off course. There's a lot of lines like that, 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 uh, I, this, this is one of those movies uh, that you quote without knowing it or, you're constantly quoting the movie, but not even on purpose. Like, uh, these are a bunch of fucking amateurs. That's, I've said that before. <laughs> it's just, um, uh, nobody fucks with the Jesus. I have a friend who always says that. Um, just, just all kinds of things. It's interesting that this movie was selected for, preservation by the library of conjure selected for the national film registry which is a pre prestigious thing all the great movies eventually get in there 
uh, and uh, certainly not the first Coen Brothers movie to be in. Uh, I think Fargo's in. I think uh, Raising Arizona is in. I believe Raising Arizona is in. Uh, I'm not sure about Raising Arizona, but it's not the first Coen Brothers movie to be in. And uh, what I started talking at the at the offset at the outset about uh, cult movie status and what that even means. Um, I don't think being in the National Film Registry means that it's no longer a cult film or can't be, you know, we have this idea of a cult film as something that only a few people are really, really, only a few people like, or only a few people appreciate, or only a certain segment of people appreciate. Um, and I don't know that that's a cult. I mean, I guess you could quibble over definitions all day, but it seems to me that a cult film is not something that only a certain segment appreciates, but something that you have a certain population of people that are just uh, complete fans and uh, fanatics and um, who uh, are obsessed with it and who will even play dress up uh, when they go to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show because they're so enthusiastic and they love the movie so much. <clears throat> so that's kind of what a cult film has always meant to me uh, it's like going to see P pink flamingos at a midnight screening and uh and everybody knows every line that divine says everybody knows all the lines um and they're speak they're in dialogue with the actual movie because they love it so much so a, a cult films kind of to me has always meant like there's a certain segment of people who are just fanatics for it but it doesn't mean that the rest of us don't appreciate it uh, I actually like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I actually like Pink Flamingos. I'm not uh, crazy, crazy fanatics for it. You know, it's like this movie. I actually like it. So the fact that the Library of Congress, the people they had on the committee choosing the movies, the fact that they liked it enough to include it for preservation doesn't mean that it's not a cult film uh, by my standard because a cult film is something that we all appreciate. But just there's this certain segment of people who, for whatever reason, are nuts for it. Uh there's a lot of Brunswick product placement in this. I, I, I wouldn't call it, I guess I wouldn't call it product placement because um, if you're doing a movie in a bowling alley, chances are you're going to see a lot of Brunswick products. Now, I know about the Brunswick company just because uh, they, to this day, are the, the sort of leading manufacturer of uh, top-notch pool tables. Uh, the Gundry, The Brunswick Gold Crown pool table is sort of, the industry standard and preferred by uh, many a top player. Um, so they they manufacture uh, very good equipment for billiards, but obviously they're in the uh, the, the bowling world too. And the so, so you see the Brunswick logo everywhere. I, I don't know if they make bowling balls, but they make all this equipment. The little terminal they're sitting at there. And uh, I don't know, I don't know what constitutes product placement, because, I mean, there are certain shots where you clearly see the Brunswick logo, but, um, you know, it's sort of like if you do a, a movie about baseball, um, you're going to see some Louisville sluggers, you know, uh, you know, is that product placement or I'm not, I, I'm actually not, that's an aspect of it. I'm, I'm not sure how that works, especially these days, because, um, 
I mean, there are movies these days now that, uh, not to get too far afield here, but I mean, there are movies these, I mean, I went, I went to see, uh, regrettably, I went to see the, the latest Transformers. And I mean, there were whole stretches of that movie that were clearly made for China. Um, it, you know, I mean, literally just Chinese products. And uh, I mean, so they're taking product placement to new and exciting places now, but, but yeah, Brunswick. Walter, Walter, Walter. Um, it is interesting that the dude sort of listens to Walter at all. Um, <clears throat> this is a cool scene because um, the dude doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would, I mean, obviously, given the amount of weed he smokes, doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would be wigging out like this and losing his cool. But, um, but it, it's sort of the fact that he's this sort of Zen type, um, makes it all the more impressive that he, that Walter is making him lose his cool. Walter walked out with his bowling shoes on, I believe. Uh, the other two don't have their bowling shoes on. This is, here, here comes a great Deacon's moment too, right? The car on fire. It's pretty great. Oh no, this isn't the car on fire. This is the this is the car is towed. I'm sorry. That's right. The car is stolen. Speak. Sorry, I just want to get a little bit of coffee here. Speaking of Coen Brothers movies tropes, um, here's another one. <laughs> I hate to just call these out for the sake of calling them out, but they are. It is funny to notice because once again, in Coen Brothers movies, I mean, like they do shit, and I'm not sure what the point of them doing it is, except that it's just something they do. Um, so here we have the Coen trope of two cops. Uh, who are interacting with someone, and the cops are uh, not necessarily part of the story, but they 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 show up at some point, and they are they've got their own weird dynamic going on, and there's something off or weird or strange about them in some way, and it becomes funny. Or and here, so here we have the a sort of a good cop bad cop thing where the one cop on the right. And this is LAPD in the early 90s we're dealing with, right? So it's just, there's another layer of sort of funny going on here. But you have this cop on the right who is almost like uh, almost like a guidance counselor or some sort of social worker <laughs> who's uh, highly interested in this vehicular uh, theft uh, and, and uh, seems to be very empathic and uh, to almost the point of, uh, absurdity. I say absurd because I mean, cops just are supposed to have command presence, and you don't see cops behave this way. 
There are reasons cops behave the way they do. I'm just saying you don't see them uh, even crack smiles the way that guy did. And then next to him is this other cop who is grimacing, clearly doesn't want to be there, uh, is bored with all this. Uh, The things he says are sort of vaguely derisive. Uh, And so that 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 cop dynamic of uh, having two cops show up in your story and, and there's something a little off about them and usually something funny happens or they say something funny. Uh, where do you see that in other Coen Brothers movies? You see that in Barton Fink. Uh, very, my favorite line in the movie uh, comes when Barton is being questioned by the two police officers and uh, uh, they ask him if he got some kind of gay thing going on with the with Charlie, the God, John Goodman character. Just, uh, you see that in The Man Who Wasn't There. And uh, I could probably name uh, a few other instances, but there you have it. I mean, it's, it's definitely something the Coens do. Um, somebody on, I think, Reddit pointed out that when when uh, when she flies over his head like that, uh, she's um, the sound you hear is actually the sound effect of a bowling ball going down a bowling alley, and. Um, I would point out that she was sort of flying the way he was in his dream, right? The same sort of position. Uh, what does it mean? I don't know. It doesn't, probably doesn't mean anything. It's like I, like I say, they, they do these things, the Coen brothers do these things, to I, I think, to create this these kind of continuities. And, and it isn't always charged with meaning the way it would be in... Uh, uh, like a an Ingmar Bergman movie or something, you know. It's 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 just kind of oh yeah, you know. If you've ever seen footage of the Coens actually directing a movie, and such footage is uh, all over the place, actually, um, you you see the way their their process is like oh yeah, okay, well we can do it like that. why don't we do this? Oh, oh that would be great because we can do this, you know. It's sort of this um, very very uh, very um, cool to the touch uh method they have of working together uh and yet they have these very usually very tightly constructed movies i say not everything is always charged with meaning in their movies that doesn't mean it's pointless or that you can't enjoy it uh in certain ways or analyze it in certain ways and certainly there are movies where everything is charged with a lot of meaning um uh, no Country for Old Men is probably the best example of a movie where, um, you know, <laughs> the character is wearing a certain kind of boots and you're supposed to note the boots because it matters because, you know, I mean, it, it's uh, that that sort of thing. When she puts the porn on, this is... <laughs> There's, uh, I'm talking over a lot of, like, really funny dialogue that Julianne Moore has. Um, Carl Hungus. <laughs> She's going to make a comment here that's one of one of the biggest laughs the first time I saw the movie was, uh, I think she just says, uh, I, I, I think I was the only one in the theater who laughed at it. And this is, I think she just says, the plot is absurd. <laughs> Peter Stormare. Um, wearing the tool belt and <laughs> so this is where the dude gets a lot of the things he's going to say later or things Maud says he you know in the parlance of our times uh, she she sort of gives him the ammo for things he's going to say uh, later. 
I haven't um uh, spoken about the actors too much here. Um uh Julianne Moore is a good place to start. Um she's obviously uh one of the you know, one of the more consistently good actors out there. There's the scissors uh, behind him by the way that that's going to pop up in his dream later on. Um she's obviously one of the more consistently good actors out there and um I just sort of adore what she, the way in which she makes Maud funny is by uh, sort of, and they, they've captured a certain kind of character, right? This sort of avant-garde uh, trust fund type who um, probably is a something of a talented artist, but, um, <laughs> you know, this sort of avant-garde trust fund type who... Um, speaks the king's english and is um not really stuck up but you know she has uh she she has no real uh moral core herself you know she dupes the dude into getting her pregnant she uh, seems to be outraged at her father's uh malfeasance to steal a word from marge gunderson uh, she seems to be outraged at her father's malfeasance, uh, stealing from the Little Lebowski Urban Achievers, not out of any kind of, um, uh, moral outrage at, at what a, uh, what a betrayal that is and, and what a, what a shady thing that is to do, but just because she kind of resents her father at this point, uh, resents her, uh, uh, his wife, Bunny, And herself is not really an attractive person, right? In, in terms of um, the uh, her morality, um, and it, it sort of seems at best at best um, ambivalent about. Um, the, I mean, she sort of represents a different kind of the one percent, right? On the one hand, you have the outright phonies and jerks like uh, uh, the Big Lebowski. And then on the other hand, you have Maud, who's kind of, uh, you almost want to say harmless, but like, um, she's sort of a different kind of rich person, um, who's equally alarming, but, um, isn't as, isn't as gross. Uh, she actually has something like a functioning conscience. She isn't as gross as Huddleston Lebowski. He's still in Winston Churchill mode here, um, her life was in her in your hands. <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman's um, facial expressions here. I mean, <laughs> again, he slips up with the we. Um, again, just the worst liar in the world. The worst. What else is he the worst at? The worst detective in the world. The worst bartender in the world, he wasn't even very competent at making his own drink. He sort of just um, doesn't measure anything, just pours it all in there willy-nilly. Um, worst uh, guy at grooming, right? The beard is unkempt, the hair is oily. <laughs> This idea of she kidnapped herself. Now, 
uh, my girlfriend was was asking me about this because we, we were watching the movie the other day, and uh, she's asking me, okay, th- because this is one of those movies. I mean, th- there is a kind of the big sleep kind of thing that the Coen brothers are doing in this film, which is to say that, uh, you know, you you get to the end of this movie. Let me just move my mic here a little bit. You get to the end of this movie, and uh, okay, wait, what happened? What? What? Okay, so she ki- so, Okay, so she she didn't kidnap herself. She went. I mean, I'm sort of doing an impression of my my girlfriend trying to explain what happens in the movie. I think. Okay, so she didn't kidnap herself. She she went missing and didn't tell anybody. She ran off to Las Vegas, didn't tell anybody. And then, uh, you know, Big Lebowski sees an opportunity to kind of, you know, again, my girlfriend talking it out, right? Sees an opportunity to kind of, uh, uh, you know, with this whole ransom thing and loops in the dude. And, and then Maud, uh, uh, just like her father, saw an opportunity to take advantage of the dude. Uh, uh, so too does Maud see an opportunity to take advantage of him sexually and uh, gain uh, paternity for uh, uh, for uh, her pregnancy, uh, and then and then Donnie dies, uh, and then that's kind of a moment, and then and then uh, like we have the toe right here, and then she mentioned the, the and then the nihilists come in and try to also take advantage of the opportunity that was you know by by having this ransom thing. Uh, so she's pretending to be kidnapped, or she she didn't get kidnapped, and, and so my my girlfriend's explaining this whole thing, and I'm like, well, yeah, basically you got it, yeah, it's it's that it's it's as as um convoluted as it sounds it's supposed to be that convoluted i cannot i will not abide another toe now this is my my favorite thing about walter in this movie because he's wrong about so much he's an idiot about so much and i love that they did this because by this time in the film we've seen walter behave um we've seen how stupid he is we've seen his judgment we've seen how he misreads situations I fucking love the fact that he's right about the toe. <laughs> I fucking love it. He is correct about the toe. He says, well, I can get you, I can get you, he just said it, I can get you a toe by three o'clock with nail polish, you know. You, know, you want a toe? I'll get you a toe. I, they just t- took someone else's toe and that's not her toe. Whoops. Dropping things all over the place. Yeah, he says, oh, well, they just got a toe. It's uh, obviously not her toe. And I love that he's right about that because that's a big thing to be right about. <laughs> now, this is, you know, you talk about the Walter character. This is one of John Goodman's more impressive roles here <laughs> to me. I mean, this is hilarious. Uh, he's obviously in a lot of Cohen movies. But... I love the idea of a character who um, is shouting and saying all this crazy shit in a in a diner in during what looks like a morning or lunchtime. He's saying all this crazy shit, and then the waitress comes over and says, "Sir, 
please keep your voice down. And he cites he cites the First Amendment. He cites prior restraint. Um, <laughs> the Supreme Court has roundly rejected prior restraint. I know, it, the idea of someone who's that asinine to to um, uh, seriously contend that there's a, a First Amendment issue going on when when she just asked him to keep his voice down is. Um, I don't know. I don't even know what I'm saying. It's, it's, that's just endlessly funny to me. The wax from the candle, you can really see it there. It's, it's dripping into the tub. Now, this is the, if you're keeping track or playing a drink, a drinking game, this is going to be the third time that someone has broken in to it's sort of like all the major antagonists or all the major players break into the dude's house at some point, right? Or come in on a drop by unannounced, so like Maud, uh, uh, Jackie Treehorn's thugs, and um, uh, and the nihilists. That is uh, uh well, that's a that's an animal there, but that is uh, uh, Flea, the famous uh. uh Guitar, bass guitarist for Red Hot Chili Peppers, who uh, has had quite a uh, quite a movie career. Actually, uh, I remember seeing him in stuff like he was in the Chase with Charlie Sheen and Christy Swanson, and that that was like God, that must be twenty five years old. That movie uh, by now. Um, <laughs> It's a cricket bat that the one nihilist had, uh, the tall one. Um, again, he was in the in the bathroom. Um, he's always sort of in cruise uh, when someone drops by. This is a very... Um, one of the more realistic scenes in the movie of of um going to pick up your car after it's it's been stolen it's in some godforsaken lot owned by the city and uh, they uh, the fact that the guy who's bringing him his car is a police officer at all is sort of surprising but i i think they just wrote him as a police officer to to because it makes it more funny uh it makes it funnier when uh, the guy laughs at him you got any leads uh <laughs> his reaction is great you know we can the, he, we got guys down at the crime lab <laughs> they they got us working in shifts there you go <laughs> so we have uh, the various uh, there's a lot of different kinds of police officers in this movie right we had the the two police that i mentioned was the cohen trope right donnie drinking like an orange slice um and then we have the um uh whatever kind of cop that was and then we have um in one of my one of my more cherished scenes the uh sheriff of malibu who throws a mug at his head <laughs> Now, this is kind of um, where the movie ends. Here is is at the bar at the at the bowling alley uh, bar, and we have this configuration. Except by that time, Donnie has has died.
Walter is um, a weird kind of, uh, I mean, obviously the, you know, combination of John Melius, all these different things, but <clears throat> he's also a weird guy in the sense that he, we know he owns that security company. Um, we know he's a bowler, we know, but, but the whole thing about him being divorced and still pining for his, uh, his ex-wife who's moved on and, and is remarried and he's doing her and the new husband favors by taking care of the dog. The dog's got papers, you know, uh, takes that job very seriously. Uh, all this stuff about Vietnam. He's someone who's, um, living in the past, but uh, someone who, I mean, all those things suggest an emotional kind of fragility to him uh, that I think is so uh, sort of endearing because otherwise he would just be an oaf uh, and a dangerous one, right? But um, there's this, when we hear, when we see how he has never gotten over the divorce and still, um, strangely wants to be a Jew because simply because he converted when he married her. Uh, th th that suggests a kind of heartache that endears you to a character. We actually know more about Walter than we know about the dude. Uh, he seems to exist outside of space and time, right? He's always been uh, the same guy and never... Although when he's in bed with Maud, he does reference... Um, uh, that he was, and it sounds like he's telling tall tales, but, uh, he does reference being in the Seattle seven, I think he says, and, oh no, I was one of the other guys. Uh, and then he, he, uh, when he talks, tells Brandt about his, uh, experience of being in college, he was said, uh, well, you know, he, all I did was bowling and occupying various administration buildings, you know? Um, so he, he, uh, has a past, but we actually know more about um, the the personal life of Walter than we do of the dude. And we know almost nothing about Donnie, uh, Walter, when he eulogizes Donnie, uh, that, that, that rather offensive eul fucking eulogy. <laughs> he mentions that Donnie, uh, uh, Donnie Karabatsis is his last name, which I believe is a Greek last name. Uh, he mentions that Donnie, um, like to surf. So the, the, the whole, um, one of the things that confused my girlfriend is the whole thing with the cowboy. Um, and, uh, unexplained cowboys are a great thing to put in your movie. If you want to make a great movie, um, just write that down. Uh, you know, this Mulholland drive, uh, there's another one I just saw. It's a Jake Gyllenhaal movie, very strange indie movie with Jake Gyllenhaal, um, where, you know, you, you once again, unexplained cowboy. <laughs> sort of, I think the movie takes place in L.A. and it's like you know, cowboy just wa walks in, says something weird, and fucking leaves, takes off. And it, it, it was memorable. Um, uh, that was one of the things that Courtney didn't understand. Was um, what was up with the cowboy? Why? Why is he? Is he like a Greek chorus thing? Is he? I said, don't don't worry about it. Like, <laughs> it's not. It's just a fun thing they did. And the Coens mentioned that, um, or are fond of mentioning that they liked working with Sam Elliott because his, his mustache made it 
easy for them to loop his lines later because you can you can't really see his lips moving. You really get a sense for Maud in this scene, uh, even more so than the where she's painting naked and is uh, on a on a you know strung up in the air, flying over the canvas in this sort of action painting that she's doing. Um, you you really get a sense for her uh, in this scene. Um, you get a sense for what her I want to say priorities are. But she, she, uh, and it's, it's Julianne Moore's performance here is a little more, we get a little more of that Maud personality. We get a little more of that, um, uh, she doesn't quite crack a joke here, but she, we see her laugh. Um, uh, we don't know what, but we figure it must be weird. I love the Autobahn. If you, if you actually pause it here and, and look at the, the, names of the songs the names of the songs are hilarious i think they're all sort of um double entendre <laughs> this is wide shot who the fuck is this guy that's great that's great so why do people like this movie um it's actually uh in my experience Excuse me. In my experience, this movie is kind of polarizing. Um, it has its stalwarts, and then it has people who are who just don't either don't get it or or don't think it's funny, or um, a lot of people who who are sort of down on the Coens. There's a new sort of fashionably, maybe it's just a social media thing, but it's it's sort of. Uh, become sort of fashionable to be kind of down on the Coen brothers or suggest uh, basically gussy up old arguments that have always been made about them. Like they, they don't have any emotion in their movies or they're overrated. You know, these are, these are, these are old, old arguments. Um, But I, I think, I mean, those are those are some reasons why people might not like the movie, but I think it's such a strange kind of comedy that it's it, it, comedy is a weird thing because comedy movies are a weird thing because there's no one kind of comedy, uh, and I don't mean I'm not just talking in genre. I mean you know, screwball comedy, madcap comedy, workplace comedy, you know. It's not that there's just all these genre, genres, it's that there are, within those genres, there are, there are different ways one might approach doing it, different kinds of jokes you can tell. And, and I think the Coen brothers definitely, in their movies uh, generally, have their own kind of funny, their own kind of thing often a very specific thing that they think is funny. And so you have movies that I think are absolutely hilarious that um, that the Coen brothers make that don't do very well, right? Like uh, Intolerable Cruelty is one of them with uh, George Clooney. Uh, that movie, I think that movie is, I should do a commentary on that. That movie is fucking hilarious. Um, nobody remembers that movie. Nobody really cares about that movie. Um, so, And I think it's because the humor is, is so different. Um, 
and I think the humor in the Big Lebowski, I'm, I'm talking about why, why do people like it? Why do people not like it? Uh, this movie, the movie is of such a, um, you know, often when you try to describe things like this, you end up relying on these sort of shop worn terms, these shop worn sort of, uh, words that, that everybody, these descriptors that everybody uses and everybody thinks we all mean the same thing when we use them, but we use them so much that who knows. Um, but it's, it's, I want to use the word offbeat. It's, it's sort of this offbeat, um, unusual jokes, uh, that you, where you're not even sure what's being made fun of. This might be a perfect example right here. Um, this is so ridiculous what we're seeing here. I mean, this is the kind of thing that what this guy's dance recital, the dude's landlord's dance recital of this performance art or whatever the fuck he's doing. Um, even Maud and this is a different way to write the screenplay, right? You could have this be Maud and the dude's sort of first date, quote unquote, (laughs) like that Walter dressed up too. Um, or, or I think he's dressed up uh, because he wants to go see Larry. Uh, anyway, yeah, because he brings a briefcase to the meeting with Larry. Okay, story checks out. But yeah, this is something. This, this, you know, why is this funny? I mean, it's so ridiculous that even Maud would would say this is ridiculous. But it just seems so. I mean. It, it's it's ridiculous and absurd, but nobody in the audience, the audience that's there, is laughing at it. The dude uh, looks perplexed. Donnie just looks kind of vaguely interested. And um, what is it that they're making fun of there? <laughs> like, what what's the joke? And, well, there's no... Uh, maybe that you could say, well, they're making fun of certain kinds of performance art or something, but... I mean, there's no, nothing that they're really lampooning there, right? I mean, it's just this weird thing uh, that's that's happening uh, that gives us this setting where the dude and Walter can have this dialogue exchange. And uh, and it's paying off an earlier moment where um, uh, we had the dude's landlord say, hey, you're going to come to my recital. So we're, we're paying that off. But, but, is it really a payoff if it doesn't do anything? Like there are all these characters who sort of pop up in this movie and, uh, and they're never really paid off or brought back into the story. Uh, Jesus is probably the big example where, you know, here's this menacing guy who's a sex offender and who is their nemesis at bowling. You think that that would come back into the story at some point and matter. And it doesn't. And that itself is, well, first of all, it's, it's very, it's very Raymond Chandler, um, in a sense, but it's also, it's, it's also funny in a sort of, uh, I won't use the word meta, but it's funny in a sort of, um, uh, existential sense or, or just apart from the actual jokes in the movie, there's this other layer of things that the movie is doing and the way it's doing it, that is itself a kind of gag uh and the the way the way you have all these characters that don't pan out don't play out i mean that itself is a kind of gag
So we have a scene repeating here. Um, Larry, uh, well, they're at Larry's house now. Um, just as Wu and the other guy came to the dude's house, um, Walter are, and uh, and uh, the dude are trying to shake down and intimidate Larry. <laughs> he's he's backgrounded by his father uh, in the iron lung. He has health problem. <laughs> now the <laughs> the kid the kid not saying anything the kid sort of um it's almost like he's been mirandized, right? Uh he he's using his right to remain silent even though they're not they're not police, but he's remaining silent. Uh and uh Walter is reacting to absolutely nothing here. It's it's again Walter's folly, right? Um <laughs> he's he he's uh he's not getting anything. He's not getting any answers and uh he's interpreting the silence as as uh, uh, somehow a challenge. It's not quite a, it's not quite a plot hole. But uh, someone on I think Reddit, I was I was just reading different stuff about this movie that people were saying, uh, and um, as a way of just you know. Uh, I was just reading different things people were saying, and and one thing that someone said was a kind of plot hole, which I don't agree that's a plot hole, but um, is why does Walter care so much? Like why why I mean like this is what you get when you fuck strangers in the ass, and and I mean look at what he's doing right now. Um, and they were the guy who wrote that, uh, the person who wrote that is referencing this scene. It's like why on earth does Walter care so much about this? And I think, um, and I'm not just being a, I hope I'm not just being like a Coen Brothers apologist, but I think that um, fucking Captain Lou Albano coming out to protect his car here. Um, I think I think that's a stupid point, actually. I, I think that's like saying, well, why does Walter care so much if Smokey stepped over the line? You know, he pulls a gun out on Smokey just because he went over the line a little bit, man. Why why does he care so much? Or why does he care so much about these Jewish days of obligation? Um he's a convert. He's not even married to her anymore. He clearly if he were that pious a man, he wouldn't engage in some of the behavior. You know, why does he care so much? It's like asking that, right? Walter cares so much about uh, the scene we just had with um uh, with Larry, the kid, and uh, Walter cares so much about the dude's situation and, and in unraveling this whole mystery because it's a battle for him to fight. And, well, I mean, the precursor to that, or the, the, the real thing to understand is because he's crazy. I mean, it seems like a cheat, right? If you're sort of critiquing someone's screenplay, it's like, well, why does why does this person care so much about that? It's like, well, because it's his character, but it really is his character in this case. Like, like, why does he care so much? He's a little bit nuts, and that's been demonstrated. That's been set up for us early in the film. He's a little bit nuts, and 
it's a battle for him to fight. It's a, you know, he, he can't, he can't roam the jungles looking for VC anymore. Um, so he, so he finds these, these battles to fight. And that, and in a way, he's a, he's a noble warrior, you know, he's misguided. Uh, he'll, he'll pull a, a disabled person right out of their wheelchair, but, uh, he, he's, he's misguided, but he, he's, he is kind of in a way a noble warrior in the sense that I was talking about before with the whole theme of the movie, uh, or one of the themes in the movie being this idea of, uh, the 1%, the have and have nots, um, the people who create the worth in society, uh, being represented by the big Lebowski and the dude and his friends, you kind of represent the workaday types, the guys who, um, may not have as many millions of dollars as the guys at the top or a guy like Jackie Treehorn here, but they're honest guys, uh, workaday guys, and they, are good people at the end of the day. And they don't deserve this kind of shabby treatment. Ben Gazzara, um, I, I don't remember, I, I should Google it right now, but I don't like to Google stuff while I'm talking here. But um, I can't remember if he was married to Audrey Hepburn or if he just, I know he fell madly in love with her at some point here many years ago obviously but um uh i always think of that when i think of ben gazera i always think of audrey hepburn and how he he was very public about how he said like yeah i was crazy in love with her um a lot of, lot of he's been he's done a lot of great work i feel like ben gazera has probably lost some roles uh, especially at maybe around the time this movie comes out, probably lost roles to um, uh, Robert Forster and uh, uh, a couple other actors who sort of have his profile um, This is a very, I don't know if they're going for this, but the, just the furniture here and Gazera's outfit, this sort of beach suit he's wearing. Uh, that's a fashion term, right? Beach suit. Uh, it, it's very reminiscent of um, uh, uh, Tony Montana in uh, the um, the Brian De Palma Scarface. Uh, <laughs> it's very, very reminiscent of those environments where Frank, Frank, uh, the, the, the guy, uh, that is sort of, um, originally Tony Montana's boss. And then, he, then he, they have a conflict in that movie, but, uh, it's very much an environment like this, this sort of Miami look, this sort of new money kind of mansion. Now the dude thinks he's being very clever here. And, uh, what Jackie Treehorn is doing is simply, um, presumably allowing a moment for the, uh, the roofie to take its effect. Jeff Bridges. Um, <laughs> great reveal. <laughs> 
he is a pornographer. It almost looks like a cave painting. If you you should go back and pause that the the little the way the dude sketches on it or, or rubs the pencil on it, it, it comes out looking like a sort of cave of forgotten dreams, sort of cave painting in France or something. Um, Jeff Bridges, the, I mean, look, last picture show. Uh, Crazy Heart, for which he won an Oscar. Fabulous Baker Boys. Uh, R.I.P.D. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> all these all these great roles and great movies he's been in. True Grit. Um, and this is really is one of his greatest. Um, I think there's never... Because he wasn't really a huge comedic actor. It's not like he was Steve Martin before the big Lebowski comes out, right? Um, Steve Martin, who would, uh, was, pardon me, uh, Steve Martin is just an example of someone who's, who's famous for making comedies, making very funny movies. It's not like he's Steve Martin. Um, he's um, a serious actor, make, made drama movies, uh, did, did comedy here and there. Um but wasn't like his bag. I love how dunderheaded uh, Jackie Treehorn's goons look. They look like, uh, now that I think of it, they look like actors in his porn movies. Um, they they look like they could be actors, and they they sort of have that that um, uh, that uh, arrogant. It's a it's a sort of a look of arrogant smugness combined with a sort of prison stare or a fifty yard stare that you see among. Uh, uh, porno actors. Uh, <laughs> we have another dream sequence coming here. Uh, the best dream sequence in the film, uh, for sure. No, no question. But, but yeah, so so um, I, I the reason I say I think this is one of Bridges' best best roles is not because I think this movie's so funny, and not because I think that, not even because I I think. He, he's so funny in it but just because when you have someone who's not used to doing comedy or or has not done many comedy movies or is not famous for doing comedy movies and who steps into a role like this and is so memorable and so perfect the reason i think he's so great uh, and oh by the way here's where all the imagery that we've seen in the film sort of comes into play the reason i think he's so great is because there's never a question you know someone has nailed a lead performance in a movie when there's never a question that you're looking at the character and you never think for a minute that's Jeff Bridges. Oh my God. Like there's never a question that the dude is the dude. It's just, uh, there's something, there's something, uh, just indelible about it. Um, even the way he dances here, um, (laughs) there's something about the, the, uh, enthusiasm he has in his own dream that uh, makes this all the more hilarious to me <laughs> he's wearing the same sort of tool, tool belt and outfit that peter stormare wore in uh well this film is called gutter balls but that peter stormare wore in uh in log jammin and uh bunny is replaced by maud uh i'm i i'm, I'm not sure why she's dressed like a uh like a viking warrior of some kind um 
but obviously there's the Busby Berkeley um, uh, musicals uh, influence here. Um, and I, I think I mentioned earlier that this is really um, this is really some nice Roger Deakins stuff because this can't be easy to uh, this can't be easy to uh, to light. <laughs> or choreograph or shoot or act. Um, Once again, you've got the bowling imagery and you've got all these little touches that are imagery uh, from Maud studio and this, that sort of uh, avant-garde imagery that Maud had laying around. I actually like that transition a lot where the woman uh, who was going up and down on the trampoline, all of a sudden uh, she's back in the dream. And here's the scissors uh, that I pointed out earlier on the wall coming back. Uh, and the nihilists are coming to cut off <laughs> cut off his Johnson. <laughs> These are the kinds of weird um, marijuana nightmares that's, that you do have when you smoke too much weed. Or when you, I'm sure, when you've been roofied by a pornographer. Bowling is sort of presented in the movie, or the movie explicitly, on a, at a couple points, uh, particularly toward the end. The movie presents bowling as this sort of Zen metaphor for life. Um, the dude literally says. Uh, He's asked how he's, how, how's it hanging, dude, or something? How you doing? And, uh, well, you know, um, ups, downs, uh, strikes and gutters. Sometimes you eat the bar. Sometimes the bar eats you, as as the Sam Elliott character says to him. And he says, well, you know, just, uh, it's sort of presented, uh, bowling is supposed to be a, a metaphor for life's uh, ebbs and flows, life's ups and downs. And, um it's sort of it's sort of a, a silly metaphor um that doesn't i don't i don't understand what the application is and like what does it mean um you take things as they come i mean is that is that really what the dude is thinking after this whole ordeal he's gone through and then you think okay well it's a, it's sort of a zen metaphor right uh you can't you can't do anything about um Things are going to happen as they happen. Whatever will be, will be. And you can't do anything about it. So wigging out about it isn't going to, you know. And you have to, and I think in Zen, acceptance is a, a big thing, I believe. So um, the dude kind of accepts, like, well, you know, sometimes your friends die. Sometimes uh, people burst into your house and whatever. Um, but Zen is in- indistinguishable from apathy sometimes. That's my point. Zen is in- indistinguishable from laziness. And that itself is a kind of joke. I love the Sheriff of Malibu here, uh, throwing the mug at his head. Uh, if you listen carefully, too, uh, he says a couple things there. Uh, the dude says, uh, I want a lawyer, man. I want someone like William Kunstler or Ron Kuby. <laughs> Which, which are very, uh, well, certainly Ron Kuby is a very 1990s, late 80s, 90s reference. Um, getting kicked out of the cab for 
Not liking the Eagles is pretty great. It likes Credence, doesn't like the Eagles. Got it. Um, I actually like the Eagles a lot. Um, but he says William Kunstler and Ron Kuby, who are two uh, very, very famous um, attorneys. Kunstler is dead. Uh, but there's a good documentary about William Kunstler. Uh, he was a, a left-wing guy who was involved in all kinds of causes and defended high-profile people, or represented high-profile people uh, at various times. Uh, and we see Bunny driving by here. <laughs> Toes intact. Um, but but uh, there's a good documentary about William Kunstler. You should, you should check it out on uh, maybe Netflix. It was on Netflix streaming years ago the last time I saw it. Um, and maybe it's still available there. Um, and then Ron Kuby is, I think, mostly famous. Uh, he sort of has a long hair, ponytail, sort of eccentric guy in his own right. Uh, and he's famous for defending uh, John Gotti uh, or uh, mafia types. And and um, it's just funny that the dude when he asks for a lawyer would ask for William counselor or Ron Kuby as he's coming out of his, out of his, out of his, uh, coma that he was in from the roofie. Now this sort of seduction, the line, that's my robe is pretty, pretty great. <laughs> This this act of seduction on the part of Maud is, um, a, I guess, kind of a variation on a film noir thing. I mean, she's she's the closest thing to a femme fatale we've got. Bunny, Bunny is um, far too fly by night, and um, you know, harmless at the end of the day to be to be a, a real femme fatale. Maud has got a whole agenda going on she's got uh and of course you know she's 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 got her main agenda she's got a whole agenda behind that she's got a personal agenda she's got um uh vendettas uh so and she's and she's using our protagonist uh who at this moment uh, does not know that he's being used so she's the she's when you think about it along those terms she really is a, a pretty good a pretty good femme fatale um, and there is a, a, especially the way Julianne Moore plays Maud, there is a kind of danger to her, or the sense that, uh, there's enough going on behind the eyes or enough, um, enough ambiguity, ambiguity in, uh, some of the things she says that, um, suggests not just ulterior motives, but that she's kind of uh, dangerous. Little moments like this are where you appreciate Roger Deakins, too. I mean, um, uh, the, the shadows that he throws across the bedroom here are just um, uh, the um, the way the the light is really catching the Kahlua bottle there and we so that we can see the things that the dude is is using to make his drink, you know, it's just, uh, he's got a book, uh, on his, on his table there, um, uh, by Sartre. Uh, I didn't see what the title was, but I just, it just says Sartre. Maybe in the Blu-ray you can see what the, it's a big Sartre book. So maybe it's a collected essays or something. 
the, the, we have a spit take here, which I actually think, <clears throat> and I, it doesn't make sense that I say this because I have actually done spit takes in real life. I've been drinking something or eating something on one occasion, and somebody said something uh, crazy or silly or funny, and I spit whatever was in my mouth out. Um, so it does happen, but the, I can't believe that a movie this smart would, would have a spit take. Um, it's, if I never saw another spit take again, I mean, it's, to me, it's just at this point, it's so like Nickelodeon, um, you know, uh, or Disney channel. I mean, at this point it's, if I never see a spit take again in a, movie I'll I'll be happy and he's explaining you know there's, there's a lot of ins a lot of outs a lot of what have yous um and as he's explaining he realizes something and then has to call Walter to be picked up and that is a trope too in in movies where someone's talking something out and then and then they have the uh, uh i'm sure tv tropes has a, a name for it where the the epiphany moment or the light bulb moment where or, or usually it'll be like someone else is talking it's like oh say that again uh or or um they're talking and then they have that light bulb moment where they figure it out and um It's something that happens in movies. It doesn't happen in real life so much. In real life, things happen more slowly. And and when you're telling a story, you need things to happen in a moment. It has to be a moment because that's what a story is in a sense. This moment, this moment, moment after moment after moment, and all the moments have to be significant or have to matter uh, for the for the audience to care. So, um, but it is a a kind of trope that you recognize as a trope. All right, so here's John Polito, right, who is another, yet speaking of tropes, right, who is another Coen Brothers trope of the um, detective or private investigator, sometimes maybe a police officer, might not be a police officer, some sort of private dick, as he says, who is just, um, just ridiculous. Um, John Polito is is another member of the um, the Cohen Brothers company of actors. Um, he uh, was almost the title character in the Man Who Wasn't There. They almost called the Man Who Wasn't There "Pansies Don't Float" or uh, uh, "Pansies Don't Float" uh, because he played uh, "quote unquote" the pansy in that movie, who is getting his hair cut at the barbershop and then. Exchanges words with um, Michael Badalucco and and uh, makes a pass at Billy Bob Thornton at one point, and Billy Bob Thornton says, "Was that a pass?" Um, I mean, he's just been in so many Coen Brothers movies. Oh, the bunny situation! <laughs> um, I love that picture of the the homie. the The, the picture is in black and white. <laughs> I'm hoping she'll see the picture. They're hoping she'll see the picture and get homesick. Um, and it's and it and and it's a classic CD tale that they're doing. I mean, they're sort of 
in The Big Lebowski, they're sort of weaving together all of these seedy stories that we're used to hearing about or seeing in movies, right? The idea of the innocent Midwestern cheerleader who comes out to the West Coast, gets involved with the wrong people, uh, becomes a trophy wife or becomes a pornographer. Uh, you know, uh, the idea of uh, the, 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 what we have here, the kidnappers. So Peter Stormare here finally gets his pancakes. Uh, and if you've seen Fargo, you know what I mean. Because in Fargo, he says, we stop at Pancake's house. He wants pancakes. And Steve Buscemi says, well, what the fuck are you talking about? Let's go get a steak, you know, it's whatever time. You know, he says, oh, we, we stop at Pancake's house. And I think here he, he uh, just ordered his pancakes, just got his pancakes. Which um, I would think had had to be a a little nod to Peter Stormare, finally letting him get his pancakes. You threw out a ringer for a ringer. Now, this is the part, I know someone who, um, this little montage here of uh, the dude talking out what he, his theory of the case, and then we're seeing uh, all of these images of um, uh, Big Lebowski yelling at Bunny and then putting phone books in the briefcase. You threw out a ringer for a ringer. I know someone who actually said that uh, back in 1998 that they, they walked out of the theater at this point. And first of all, I thought like, well, that's a really weird spot to walk out of a movie, um, just just in terms of um, running time. Like this is if you, I mean, usually walkouts are um, not after the midway point uh, in movies. Um, although I did see someone walk out of Django Unchained like with a half hour to go in the movie, but usually walkouts are like first twenty minutes, and. Um, so first of all, it's a weird point to walk out. Second of all, really, it took you that long to to realize that this movie was not your kind of movie? I mean, the whole throw out a ringer for a ringer thing, in the context of the story they're telling, it makes sense as a theory. <laughs> Viva Las Vegas is still playing... So it must be a tape, right? It must be a cassette. Because <laughs> this is 91. Oh, Palm Springs. That's right. Visiting friends of her in Palm Springs. Who am I? I'm a veteran. You think uh, Walter would have the dog on a leash? Dog has papers. <laughs> See, Walter is right here. Uh, his righteous ind indignation, stealing a million bucks from the little Lebowski urban achievers. You are scum, man. He's right. He is fucking scum. And and of course, what uh, as he as he indicates there, or um, sort of tacitly uh, acknowledges there, the Big Lebowski is is that uh, look, it's my word against yours. It's sort of like you know, I'm I'm the upstanding 
job creator and and you guys are human paraquat that's a great line uh, and you guys are you know low lifes <laughs> well aren't you Now, again, he calls them bums. See, I really think this is something that the movie is driving at. Um, Post-Reagan era um, arrogance of of people who, uh, of the kind embodied by the Big Lebowski, these duplicitous rich people, these duplicitous uh, bastards, um, uh, who nonetheless do not deserve this. Uh, if someone's in a wheelchair, it's, uh, you know, word to the wise. If someone's in a wheelchair, um, it's probably because they need to be. Uh, <laughs> don't do that. Insult to injury with the dog licking his face. We can never, you, you never know if Walter is going to be correct or not um, with his predictions. Uh <laughs> He predicted the toe thing. Bunny came home. She had all her toes. But boy, was he wrong about Big Lebowski not being actually disabled. One of the things that, that captures the period in this bowling alley is that um, that furniture, uh, that that furniture they're sitting on there is is uh, looks like more from the 70s than the 90s, which would be about right if you went to a bowling alley in the 1990s. A lot of bowling alleys would have stuff there that's 20 years old, you know. So a lot of times when movies are trying to evoke a period, what they end up doing, wisely, I think, is um, getting a bunch of gear and a bunch of stuff that's that's actually 20 years before the period because people, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm still... Uh, I'm sitting at a desk right now that was probably made in 1980. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's just kind of all over the place. You know, not, not every piece of furniture I have was made in the last five years. <laughs> Everything is sexual. Uh, this movie is, uh, I mean, I would love to see some, uh, poor misguided soul on YouTube, uh, do a, a, uh, do a Freudian analysis of this movie. Uh, I mean, everything is sexual and you wouldn't have to dig very deep. Uh, everything is sexual. Um, everything Jesus says, everything the nihilists say, we cut off your Johnson. Um, uh, even though the little things our lead character says are, uh, you know, can be taken, uh, this way or that. It's just a great little confrontation here because, uh, once again, Walter's right. Uh, you have a, a trio of nihilists uh, uh, lecturing or, or um, complaining about what is fair uh, and fairness, uh, making these appeals to, uh, to equity somehow, uh, uh, while all the while they're professing to be nihilists. There is a, a, a kind of con contradiction there, um, you know. A nihilist, uh, I would, I would think, by definition, has sort of opted out of the social contract. Um, the whole point is, you, you social contract, you can't opt out of it. Um, but anyway, 
it's binding upon you whether you whether you choose to abide or not. <laughs> That's the one time I think uh I think Walter's actually nice to Donnie just before his death. No, Donnie, these men are cowards. And Walter's right here. You should stand up to them. This is this sort of showdown here is I mean, the dude has it wrong. They you know, they're trying to trying to pay these guys money. Uh this is the time to fight. I mean, they just burned a car. <laughs> he has some kind of sword. The other one's got a, uh, what do you call it? The other one's got a, a very half-assed uh, uh, Taekwondo stance. And uh, and, th- and this is a great little nod to what or or payoff of what Walter said earlier, you know, that they uh forget about that camel fucker in Iraq, you know, that eye to eye eye eyeball to eyeball with Charlie, hand to hand combat. That's combat. And now he gets his hand to hand combat. Now this guy actually looks like the um Uh, the uh, uh, French director uh, Leo Carax, the uh, the tall guy. <laughs> this is such a surprising uh, thing that Donnie's having a heart attack because he doesn't look old enough to have a heart episode. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know how old, I mean, obviously, okay, Walter's a, a veteran uh, of the Vietnam War, um, dude is old enough to have protested that war, uh, according, according to him, um, Donnie must be at least that old, so um, I don't think, I, I mean, Walter, I would say, is 50, uh, dude is pushing 50, maybe, I would say, um, so, Donnie would have to be the same age, maybe? Or around the same age? Here we, here, here again. Big important man behind the desk. Uh, who is, uh, well, you know, people, I think, uh, Penn and Teller did an episode of Bullshit about, um, I think it was called Death Inc., where it's just how people in the funeral business or mortuary business or embalming and all these things that go on surrounding um, uh, surrounding death uh, and the process you go through to um, have someone buried or cremated or, or have a funeral service and how it's just a lot of price gouging. And this is a kind of a well-known thing that there's that there's a lot of um uh that it's very expensive and maybe uh maybe it shouldn't be uh and uh, i i'm uh i've buried enough people to know i yeah, i'm of that opinion <laughs> and uh so we have uh this is kind of not quite the big important man behind the desk but this is once again at least a a, a proper a respectable citizen. Uh, so we have the the thing that's been going on in the movie anyway, which is 
the uh, proper man with the you know uh, in the his holding his hands in that what the power steeple the power v and um wearing a nice suit and uh uh and speaking in hushed uh respectful tones and then you have these two um uh, these two morons sitting across from him these two bums um so yeah i you know i mean you see how it keeps popping up in the movie i mean i really think that's what this movie's about is to me i mean it's it's really i mean you could you could do the um you could do the simple thing and say oh it's it's about friendship it's about you know i really i really think you look at the time period it's about i mean i really think it's about a certain uh a certain reagan era post reagan era attitude uh you know i mean in the in the years uh that this movie takes place in the years afterward we would have uh very quickly we would have welfare reform uh and all of these uh i think uh, in my opinion a, a series of attacks upon people who have the least and um who are not bad people simply because they have the least and so i really think this movie um while it is a comedy and uh, as i said i don't think it takes its own themes as seriously uh as uh, you might oh, you know, I don't think it takes it all that seriously. I think it's just stuff that's there. But um, I do think the movie's saying something about that, you know, that 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 the attitudes that prevailed in this time that privileged the um, privileged the privileged, you might say, um, was kind of bullshit. And that, uh, you know, you've got two salt of the earth types here. Uh, who, uh, despite their idiocy, uh, at least they're not stealing from orphans the way the Big Lebowski was. The dude has the right to be mad here. That was that was kind of bullshit. What Walter did there, um, you know, the ashes blowing in the wind. Okay, that was kind of an accident. He should have known that. I mean, he should have waited to the wind died down or something but um the the speech about, should have been about donnie the eulogy should have been about donnie the so walter is an asshole there but letting letting walter give the eulogy in the first place was a was a mistake The movie, uh, you realize when you, um, when you rewatch the movie, um, that it, uh, if you've read enough screenplays on paper or you've read enough screenwriting books or you've just seen enough movies, frankly, if you've seen enough movies, um, you kind of have a sense of, of, um, when an ending is, uh, there's different things we can say, right? Or different ways of saying different things. So, um, there's a, there's a tacked on ending, which feels like something that was 
added to the soup that didn't need to be there. Uh, and, th- and then there's like an ending that is um, manufactured because the story itself doesn't have um, a conventional ending. And, you know, this story doesn't have a conventional endpoint. I mean, the ending of the plight of the dude ends uh, with, um, I, I don't think the nihilists are, I mean, the showdown with the nihilists was comedy, uh, but there's different ways they could have written it. They could have made the showdown with the nihilists and the showdown with uh, Big Lebowski happen at the same time. Uh, kind of. Instead, here they happen in succession, um, uh, one after the other. Uh, but this ending feels like, you know, there, there's not a conventional ending where you go, oh, that was a happy ending, or that was a sad end. I guess it's sad because Donnie died, as as Sam Elliott says here. I was, uh, I did hate to see Donnie go, but uh, we got a little Lebowski on the way, you know. Uh, he tries to speak about it in terms of, well, you know, this is this is kind of a this is kind of a good story, and this this is kind of a quite an ending, isn't it? With Donnie dying, and now Maud is probably pregnant. This is kind of an ending, isn't it? Well, no, it's not, Sam. Uh, this is this is a very strange uh, sort of ending we're getting here, and um, neither happy nor sad. Uh, I would have written a story where uh, Jesus. Uh, comes to the aid of uh, Jesus and Liam. Uh, come to the aid of. Uh, see, you could, you could, you could have done it instead of. Uh, I thought way too much about this movie. Instead of Donnie having the heart attack, you have Walter have the heart attack, right? So Walter has the heart attack, and he's like their their best fighter. So he drops dead, and now now they're in trouble. But who comes to the aid of? Uh, of the dude and Donnie, who are now outnumbered by the nihilists. Well, uh, here comes Jesus and Liam. They're they're nemesis, uh, nemeses who who uh, who help them, and then uh, and then they have to may- maybe bury Walter. Walter's okay, and and then they they shake hands with Liam and Jesus. Or or the the story ends instead of with the cowboy. The story ends with Jesus and Liam and dude and all of them just sitting there at the at the bowling alley doing what they always do, but this time doing it as friends, you know, maybe that would, I mean, for a comedy, maybe that would be a more ending-ish ending, but hey, uh, that's just me. Uh, hit me up on Twitter. Uh, thank you for watching with me. Really enjoyed it. And we'll see you next time.